The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Tuesday edition of PFTPM here on Peacock and Sirius XM 85. Shereen Williams. Mike Florio with all the news of the day. Fairly busy afternoon in the NFL. We have a full hour to let you know everything that's going on. Awards for Week 9 coming up as well. MDS will join us. Good afternoon, Shireen. How are you? I'm good, Mike. How are you doing on this lovely Tuesday? It is a lovely Tuesday. It is November the 9th, according to my computer. You don't need a calendar on the wall. You don't need a wristwatch anymore. The information about day and date and time is available All you have to do is look down at your screen. But I need to know your opinion because I checked to see when it is in November. We're still a month and a half away from Christmas. Chris Sims and I talked about this earlier today. What's your position on the appropriate time for Christmas music to begin infiltrating your ear canal and invading your brain? I think after Thanksgiving for me is good. Um, some of my neighbors have already put up Christmas stuff, and that's it's it's too early for that. I've told them that it's too early for that. Yeah, absolutely, it's way too early for that. It ruins the season if you start it too early. That is not a get off my lawn take. That is an I want to fully enjoy the season in the season, and I don't enjoy the season as much if the season starts too early. The season has a finite beginning and end. Day after Thanksgiving. And technically the epiphany, but frankly, once you get past January 2, it all feels a little stale. Like ride out the New Year's holiday, maybe take one more day, and then get all that stuff and put it away. And I almost said another word that begins with S and just kind of feeling a little too (laughs) casual and nonchalant today. I will say this, though. Sims and I talked about it this morning. And as soon as we threw to break on Sirius XM 85, there was a commercial for the Sirius XM Christmas Channel. So, so they're listening. <laughs> they're listening and they're, they're actively disagreeing with our position. Okay, many have disagreed with the positions articulated by Aaron Rodgers. And to his credit, the Packers quarterback did not run and hide from his usual Tuesday appearance with Pat McAfee. He addressed the situation head on. I don't think it's irresponsible to speculate on whether or not he obtained some professional advice on how to get himself out of this crisis. There are experts out there who will give you advice on what to say and when to say it. Here's what he had to say to Pat McAfee today, specifically regarding the storm of something other than rain that broke out last week after he last appeared with Pat McAfee. I do realize that I am a role model to a lot of people. And so I just want to start off the show by acknowledging that you know i made some comments that that people might have uh, felt were misleading and uh you know to anybody who felt misled by those comments i take full responsibility for those comments you know he also said i i share an opinion that is polarizing and i misled some people about my status his, his initial apology felt like that it was focused more on what he said on friday not that he was apologizing for lying to people 
on August 26. And I thought he was leading up to that, to a, a big moment. I apologize for lying. I agree that I was lying. I was not telling the truth. I was trying to conceal my status, and I went about it the wrong way. There's no harm in saying that. I would have a ton of respect for him if he said that. I'm not looking to drag the guy through the mud. I just want him to acknowledge that he lied, that he lied. Just just tell us that you lied. And this is kind of a well-parsed, probably negotiated, well, I don't want to say I lied. I don't want to have a tape of that. I'll do this vague general apology that if you want to interpret it as meaning I apologize for lying, so be it if you want to interpret it that way. But it takes a little work. It takes a little elbow grease to interpret it that way. Why not just sit down and say, I'm sorry I lied on August 26. I didn't want to disclose my status, and I didn't know how else to deal with it, and I shouldn't have handled it the way I did. What's wrong with that? I would love that if he did that. No, there was nothing wrong with that, Mike, and that's absolutely what he should have said. And, you know, you alluded to the PR person may have helped him out. I wondered if he had a PR person in this because he also said in his statements, I stand by what I said. So all those comments, does that mean everything he said on Friday was accurate? I mean, to me, it was not an apology. It's like if I offended anyone, I'm sorry you're offended type thing is how it came off to me. But if he had said some of what he said today initially, I think. Everyone would have had less of a problem with what he said than than what he said on Friday. I mean, Friday was just a fiasco. Today, he cleaned it up a little bit, but not all the way, Mike. There's still a little bit of a mess there. Yeah, there is. And, you know, he said what he was going to say, and I think he said all he's going to say. And it will be interesting. There was an attitude I picked up at one point where this is all he's saying about it, period. Like press conference, reporters who are paid to cover the team who may be the ones who are justified in being a little pissed at me for lying about my status and entering that press room every week without a mask on while I was pretending to be vaccinated. It'll be interesting to to see if he does the Bill Belichick, it's already been addressed, I've already said all I'm going to say about that, because that will not go over well. If he does not answer the questions that are posed to him by the people who are in the room when he was violating the protocol in support of his lie, that will not go over well. Yeah, and they're the ones who asked the question that prompted the answer of, yeah, I'm immunized. They're the ones who answered it, and they did follow up on it, and he continued to enforce the lie with with the follow-up question. So, yes, they deserve the answers, and he should respond to them with whatever questions they have left, even though he's talked twice since then. He hasn't talked to the people he directly lied to, Mike, or the people he sat in that room with unmasked for however many weeks it's been. And, oh, by the way, the NFL it sent out the protocols reminding teams of the Aaron Rodgers rule, which basically they said by sending that out that Aaron Rodgers violated protocols, which we all know he violated protocols. And I don't know if Pat McAfee came back around to it. I paused the interview after about 15 or 20 minutes when it felt like they moved on. I had other things I had to do, and I can't just sit there and constantly listen if he's going to talk about things that aren't relevant to why I wanted to hear him. I I don't, you know, I'm sorry, but I I just can't shut down my day. Maybe this came up. I want to know, did he make a commitment to comply with the mask protocol, the mask requirement when he comes back. I don't know if you listen to all of it, but that's something I'm going to circle back around and check out. I don't think he did. I, I don't I don't feel like it was moving in that direction, but he's going to have to make that commitment because even though he's got a 90-day 
testing holiday when he returns, and the 90 days begins on the day he tested positive, and he also won't be subject to being knocked out for five days as a close contact with someone who ended up being infected. Even though he gets a pass there, he still has to comply with the mask requirement, and uh, that'll be interesting to see if he does. Maybe he'll just stop doing press conferences and take the fines that the NFL will impose there if he doesn't show up for media availability, which has been an issue from time to time with other players. So I don't think this is over yet. He did take a lot of the steam out of it. He didn't add to it. He tried to walk it back a little bit. But I I still think there's some unanswered questions that I assume we'll get the answers to at some point. I hope. Well, and you know what'll be well, you know what'll be weird, Mike, is the next time he talks is assuming he plays on Sunday, it will be post game. And are you going to ask all those questions post game, or are you going to start talking about the game? And then the Packers PR staff cuts it off and says, "All right, he's done." And then you come back Wednesday when he would talk again, and he says, "I've already talked to you guys. You guys had a chance to answer those questions Sunday." So it's going to be weird timing on all of this, and he can play that off to, "Hey, you had availability after the game, and you didn't ask me all those questions, so you've already talked to me since then." So weird timing on all this too, assuming he plays on Sunday. Yeah, it is weird because I would assume he's not required to be available on Wednesday for his midweek press conference right. even though he's going to start if he's cleared because he's currently on the COVID list I, COVID list guys are basically out of sight right. out of mind until they are cleared to return so and and that makes it weird too because he could sit in the same seat with the same digital connection that he used to talk to Pat McAfee and AJ Hawk today to do a press conference tomorrow with Packers reporters under the assumption he's going to be cleared to play by Sunday and and on that point he did say there's a small possibility he won't start against the Seattle Seahawks because he has to be cleared from a cardiovascular standpoint. Is there any heart issue? This is a guy who's been shut down for 10 days. And remember, when Chandler Jones was knocked out for a game due to COVID, he missed the second game, not because of COVID, but because he'd lost 15 pounds and he wasn't in game shape ready to go. So it's not a 100% guarantee he's going to play on Sunday. And he said that himself. I think that was the other big piece of news that he acknowledges the door is open just a bit for him to not play. Yeah, and I talked to somebody in the league today who talked about him sitting out and not he's not able to do anything. He, talk, he said today he's, he's walking and he's doing yoga and we'll amp that up some to, to running. But he's not throwing. He's not throwing to teammates, as far as we know, at least. He's not doing any of that stuff. So can you just walk back and practice on Saturday and play like there's no rust after 10 days of really kind of sitting around, Mike? I don't know. That's going to be interesting to watch to see how he comes out of this. There are only a handful of players who can just not practice and walk out there and just pick right up and flip the switch on. It just doesn't really work like that. Well, and we saw Dak Prescott after a three-week layoff when he hadn't played, and he clearly had been working between games. And I assume Aaron Rodgers has some capacity to stay in shape at home, but there's a difference between what you do on your own and what you do when you're in a team facility, what you do when you're practicing, all the things that are necessary. He's on his own until he goes back. And if, if there is a small handful of guys who can pull it off, Shireen, I would say he's one of them. And it, it'll make for a great yeah. story if he comes back and plays really well on Sunday and we get Russell Wilson back. So we didn't get Mahomes versus Rodgers. We hopefully will get Wilson versus Rodgers. And Russell Wilson and the Seahawks desperately need that win, and they have not won 
at Lambeau Field since 1999. And Wilson obviously has never won there because he hasn't been around until 2012. Uh, let's hear from Aaron Rodgers talking about his position on politics and activism and sticking to sports. Here he is. I'm an athlete. I'm not an activist. So I'm going to get back to doing what I do best. And that's, and that's playing ball. Like, I shared my opinion. It wasn't one that was, that, that was come to uh, frivolously. It involved a lot of study and what I felt like was in my best interest for my body. But, um, you know, further comments, you know, I'm going to keep between myself and my doctors. And, um, you know, I don't have any further comments about, uh, about any of those things. Yeah, he's going to stick to sports after he spent 45 minutes not sticking to sports. And I have no problems with people using their platforms to say whatever they want to say. You can be criticized for the substance of what you say. There are some out there who will criticize you for the mere act of saying anything when what you say disagrees with their opinions. I mean, let's face it. There are half of the people in the media, or at least the mindset of half of the people in the media, I don't know the exact percentage that fall in this bucket, but the idea is stick to sports because you're saying something I don't like. If you're saying something I like, then go ahead and don't stick to sports. And the people who yell at us in the media and the athletes to stick to sports on the opinions they don't share have no qualms about sharing their own opinions. I fully support people saying whatever they want to say, but I also support the rights of others to share their opinions and critiques of what they said. That's the marketplace of ideas, and I'd like to think we can do it tactfully, like adults, and professionally, but obviously in this current cesspool that we've become, it's hard to do that. But I'm not going to be one of these that yells stick to sports to Aaron Rodgers. I think everybody should be able to say what they think. And if he wants to be an activist, be an activist. If he wants to speak out, speak out. I, I, I think that he dipped his toe in the waters on Friday and he realized it was too damn hot or too damn cold and I'm not, I'm not going to get back in that tub. Well, and the problem I have with it, Mike, is he spread misinformation. And as he pointed out, he is a role model. And to spread that misinformation, people listen to him and people follow him. And so if he's saying correct things that are factually correct, I have no problem where he stands. I have no problem with him using his platform. But let's don't spread misinformation about COVID and the vaccines out there for other people to go, well, Aaron Rodgers said that. Well, Aaron Rodgers didn't get vaccinated. Well, Aaron Rodgers did this or did that when it's not factually correct. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And, uh, you know, the, one of the reasons why the union stayed silent about this, I believe, is that the union did not want to provoke one of its members and it did not want to prolong this conversation that entails one side of the discussion saying things that could dissuade anyone out there who's still on the fence about getting the vaccine. Look, once you get the vaccine, you've gotten it. But there are people who are waiting and they're watching, and they're procrastinating, and they just don't want to do it for whatever reason. For whatever reason. A lot of people just don't want to do it. I don't think I need it. I don't, I just don't, you know, if there's any risk whatsoever, why do it? I'm not worried about COVID. I'm young. I'm healthy. It's not going to touch me. It's not going to affect me, even though plenty of people have died who had that attitude. The union doesn't want someone in a profile like Aaron Rodgers to be saying things that could fuel the folks who are continuing to put it off and put it off. So that's why the union didn't say anything. And I think they also believe it's just bad business to be calling out your members publicly. And, and you know, it's funny. 
he didn't call the union out directly. It was all, and it wasn't even implied. He acted like it's up to each individual as to whether or not they're going to sign off on these rules. And he just glossed over the fact that the union signs off on the rules for the players. And unlike Cole Beasley, who put the union in the crosshairs, Aaron Rodgers did steer clear of criticizing the union. Maybe that was a favor to his friend J.C. Treader, who used to be the Packers center, is now with the Browns and is the NFLPA president. But, you know, it, it, it's part of this twilight zone that we went through on Friday because Aaron Rodgers knows how unions work. And this idea that I didn't sign anything, I didn't agree to anything, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You, you, don't, you don't agree to anything. Your union does. Well, and when they came out today with the protocol reminders, Mike, they put in the NFL and the NFLPA jointly agreed and then listed, obviously, the Aaron Rodgers rule was among those things that they put in there, uh, a reminder to mask up during indoor press conferences, which, as we know, Aaron Rodgers never did. Yeah, and uh, we'll see if he does when it's time for him to return or if he'll try to find some sort of a workaround. That will not help him at this point. Unless he gets vaccinated, he needs to comply with every rule. And he will be told, I believe, if you don't comply, once he's fined, and he should be, and the Packers should be fined for not forcing him to comply, even though it's a bad rule, it's a bad system, and the league has put the teams in a tough spot. Going forward, if you don't comply, the penalties will increase up to and including a suspension. All right. I think we've all we need to, said all we need to say about Aaron Rodgers. Let's pivot to the other NFL player who is gathering headlines and will continue to do so until he lands on a new team. Shireen, you were right. I was wrong. I set the over under a little bit too high. I set it at one and a half (laughs) and the under hit. No teams claimed Odo Beckham Jr. on waivers. And now he can sign with any team he wants, including your Dallas Cowboys. There he is running circles around the Cowboys. That was one of the best games he ever had, arguably the best game he had as a member of the Cleveland Browns. And now we see where he lands. I was told early in the process, Seahawks, Saints, 49ers, the Saints tried to trade for him before the trade deadline. And Sean Payton said earlier this week they don't have the cap space to claim him on waivers. Oh, but they got the the cap space if they want to, to to sign him to a minimum contract, maybe with some incentives that would hit the cap next year. You can play games with that, not likely to be earned incentives and whatnot. I think the Saints are going to make a run at him. I just don't know that's where he wants to go because he's going to want to go somewhere where there's somebody who can throw him the football. That's why I believe Seattle is a team to watch. Even though they're 3-5, and five, with Russell Wilson coming back, things can get interesting. And with all those weapons they have there, if they're committed to throwing the football, and maybe Pete Carroll is changing. Maybe he's had an epiphany during the time, Shireen, that he was deprived of Russell Wilson. And maybe he's willing to throw the ball more when Russell Wilson comes back to DK Metcalf Tyler Lockett, and maybe Odo Beckham Jr. Well, and think about this, though, Mike. If he goes there, you just mentioned the two guys, DK and Tyler Lockett. And if he goes there, he's the third guy, unquestioned. If he goes to the Saints with Michael Thomas being done, he is the guy. He can be receiver number one. And whoever that quarterback is, whether it's Trevor Simeon, or Taysom Hill will target Odell Beckham. He's going to get a ton of targets. Traquan Smith, Kenny Stills, Marquez Callaway, Deontay Harris, those, those guys aren't, aren't as good as Odell Beckham. Odell Beckham can roll in there as receiver one and get all the catches that he wants. He's going home. He can be the hero. How excited would Saints fans be to have him back in Louisiana? 
All of that, Mike. So the Saints, to me, make a lot of sense, except for the fact, as you brought up, they don't have that quarterback that the Seahawks have, like a Russell Wilson. So it's going to be interesting what he decides. Well, and it also is intriguing to me if he would like to play for a team with a quarterback who isn't a strong personality because he spent three seasons, two and a half, with Baker Mayfield, who's the alpha in Green Bay. And who was his quarterback with the Giants? It was Eli Manning, who's flatlined. You know, he's not big personality, in your face, I take charge. And and I just wonder whether or not Odo Beckham Jr. would like to, as being the number one receiver, also being the guy who dictates the terms of the relationship with the quarterback. And the quarterback is always going to look to throw him the ball. And the plays are going to be designed to get him the ball. And he's in a position, you know, if four or five teams are interested in him, and who knows how it will go, he's in a position to tell his agent to find out what the plans are for using me. And how are you going to get the ball in my hands? Am I just going to be a decoy? Uh, or are we going to have me run the ball? Uh, or are we going to have some jet sweeps, some bubble screens? Am I going to be in the backfield? H- how are you going to use me? After spending time in Cleveland and not being used to his full extent and capacity, I'd sure want to know. Going through the door, before I sign the contract, then it's irrevocable. I'd want to know how I'm going to be used. Oh, no question, Mike. And I was curious. I I thought about this and went back and looked it up. His last 100-yard game, and, of course, he he missed most of last season. He played seven games. I get that with the torn ACL. But you go back. His last 100-yard game was six catches for 101 yards against the Seahawks on October 13th of 2019. That was forever ago. And, of course, his last Pro Bowl, we could talk about that, was forever ago. That was in 2016. Last 1,000-yard season was 2019. So I do wonder if he gets it to a team that's going to use him with the quarterback who can get the ball to him, can he be the Odell Beckham that we once knew? Or is he beyond that point now at, at 29? Is he, is he used to coming off that torn ACL? Is he, is, does he still have the, I saw somebody last night said Odell Beckham can still be a top 10 receiver. And I started naming receivers. I don't even know that he's a top 20 receiver anymore. Can he get back to that point? I don't know, Mike, and I think teams, some teams have questions about how good he can possibly be. Can he be a receiver number one anymore? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's like top ten quarterbacks. If you go through the league and say, that guy's top ten, that guy's top ten, that guy's top ten, you're going to end up with 20. Same thing with receivers. Yeah. If you just do it in a vacuum, you're going to end up with more than ten. Then you're going to have to go to the list and say, oh, crap, which ten of these guys do I drop to get to my top ten receivers? Um, All right, Uh, Tony Carrente last night with a couple of very bad calls, a couple of controversial moments. And, you know, it's funny. Somebody sent me during the show. I don't know if you've seen this, Shireen. I hadn't seen it until it was sent to me. A sideline image of the field goal attempt that ended the game. And it wasn't even close unless you listen to Steve Levy. Three Steelers (laughs) looked like they were lined up in the neutral zone on that snap. And I don't know that the five extra yards would have made a difference. But the way I'm looking at this, I mean, unless I got some parallax view going on, it sure looks like we got some Steelers on the wrong side of the neutral zone at the snap. And it's, there's so many of them that it doesn't stand out. There's three of them that are right apparently in line with the football, if I would put a straight line. Anyway, we may, we may or may not write something about it. But uh, uh, regardless, the big takeaway from what happened last night with 
Tony Correnti, and we had we had we had three well four things that really stood out. There was a ticky tack roughing the passer on Ben Roethlisberger. Then again, that seems to happen every yeah. week with some quarterback. There was a. A, a roughing the passer on Justin Fields that just simply wasn't called. And that may not be specific to the Bears. I think certain quarterbacks don't get the calls and certain quarterbacks do. Remember when Ed Hockley famously said to Cam Newton, you're not old enough to get that call? I think some yeah. of these referees may have that attitude. But between the roughing call and non-call, the low block that clearly was not an illegal maneuver because yeah. it was in the tight end box, and you could argue it wasn't even a block, and then the taunting foul and the way that was handled very glaring and we continue to harp on that point number one because it's unacceptable but number two it makes people think the fix is in it makes people think the league wants things to go a certain way and somebody made a good point today it's not just the league potentially wanting it they need to be on the lookout for a tim donahue situation let's say it it happened in basketball it may not be that the league wants a certain outcome. It may be that one specific referee wants a certain outcome. And if you're going to get to anybody on the crew, who are you going to get to that can affect things? The referee. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that Tony Correnti is in any way corrupted. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when you have incompetence like what we saw last night, that's when people start to wonder if there's corruption. And that's not good for anybody. Well, Mike, I did a search of Tony Corrente, and I forgot this play from last year. I think he's just a bad official. And last year, if you remember, Patrick Mahomes was playing against the Patriots, and he ruled in the grasp after whether Patrick Mahomes threw the ball or lost the ball. Either way, Calhoun came up with the ball, and the Patriots should have had the ball in a tight game. Chiefs went on, I think, to win that game. But that was another controversial play just a year ago, and he seems to always be involved in these and it, the Bears, have, to me, have a legitimate gripe about everything that happened yesterday in that game. 12 penalties for 115 yards. And, of course, as you said, didn't get the call on Justin Fields and had the touchdown taken away. I mean, there were just so many things that, that went against the Bears that, to me, were just unfair. I was rooting for the Bears to win that game simply because I thought the officiating was so bad against the Bears. I was hoping they could overcome all of that. It would be karma. They would come out and win that game but they didn't win it. So I think they have legitimate gripes with what went on. There are plenty of games that get buried in the 1 o'clock Eastern kickoffs on a Sunday that from time to time would stand out as being horribly officiated if we were only watching them. It becomes problematic for the league when those single-game windows, like a Monday night, Sunday night, Thursday night, have these problems because it becomes a huge talking point the next day. And it can't be something that the NFL wants. And, 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 you know, we get the pool reports sometimes. The referees aren't subject to any type of press conference requirements. I think they should be. And the NFL is not going to put Walt Anderson, Perry Fuel, or anybody else on NFL Network or any other platform to discuss this. They just don't. And when they do discuss it, it's the Al Riveron approach, Shereen, like with the low block. Yeah. He recites the rule. And then he says that the rule was violated in this case. Without getting into any of the facts or specifics, he says it's a violation of the rules to block a player below the waist outside the tackle box. And in this case, the player initiated contact below the waist outside the tackle box without acknowledging that, number one, there possibly wasn't contact. And number two, he definitely wasn't outside the tackle box. But they don't get into the facts. They just say, here's the rule. 
and it was violated here. And that's the only transparency you're going to get. And we're not going to acknowledge that we made a mistake. And you know what? The joke's on us because we can complain all we want, but nobody's doing anything about it. The money keeps flowing through the coffers. People keep watching the games. I remember Jeff Fisher told me once when he was on the competition committee on, I assume it was an episode of PFT Live when we were on radio years ago, that uh, basically it gives us stuff to talk about that there are officiating errors. Is that what you want? Is that really what you want, NFL? You want to be the ultimate reality show? So you want us to have mistakes to talk about? Maybe in a world where gambling isn't legal, but as we see more and more states come online and more and more money get bet, and these these defects, Shireen, are going to cause a major problem for the NFL if they don't start cleaning them up. Yeah, I think we had five posts on officiating today, Mike. Everyone's talking about the officiating. They're not talking about this game. I can't imagine this is what they wanted. And I can't imagine going to the specifically to the taunting rule that this is what they wanted. It to decide a game. And, and I realize the, the Bears went back down and scored and the Steelers went back down and scored. But it did affect the game. Officiating affected that game yesterday. And it went against the Bears. And there is no accountability and no transparency within that officiating office. Now, I remember when Mike Pereira was in charge, Mike, and those videos would come out. And Dean Blanding too. Those videos would come out on Friday afternoon. It was must-see TV. We had to write posts on, because he would talk about, both of them would talk about the missed calls of that week or calls they got right that week, but they would be the controversial calls of the week. There was accountability. There was transparency. You felt good about the officiating office. Even if they messed up the calls, Mike, you felt good about where they were. At least they came out and said, hey, we, we, we screwed it up. We messed this up. We, you know, there's nothing we can do except fix it now and show our officiating crews this is what you need to do. But we don't have that anymore. There is no public accountability with these guys. And it rarely felt like we were getting the Baghdad Bob treatment, that they were just saying what yeah. they had to say so they could turn the page and move on. And with Al River on, that's when it all stopped. Remember, he did it at first. It yep. was a pointless exercise. They would, like, pick random plays that nobody gave a crap about. And then they just decided to stop doing it. Well, when you stop doing it after you've made it completely pointless, no one's going to complain. They did it perfectly. They, they, they gaslit us to the point where it was natural for them to just stop doing it. But uh, bottom line is, as Dean Blandino said on PFT PM a few years back, the NFL does not value the position of VP of officiating, meaning yeah. they don't pay. They should pay. And somebody very smart raised a suggestion yesterday that they should pay whatever it takes to hire Blandino, Pereira, Sterator, put them in their own facility in Kansas or Indiana, away from 345 Park Avenue, and they are basically the overseers, the overlords of all officiating during all games. Any issues, any defects, any problems, they fix them, and I could get behind that quickly because it's obvious those three know what they're doing. No offense to Terry McCauley or John Perry. They could get in on it too, but three guys. Three guys working together, serving as the ones who make sure that the worst-case scenario doesn't happen. And I think between those three, they could get pretty much most of these problems worked out in real time. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. MDS joins us for the Week 9 Awards. I can't believe I, Week 9. It looks like a typo. Week 9 is over. MDS will join us and we will hand out our non-award awards when PFTPM continues right after this. 
The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Week 9, dead and gone. We move on to Week 10 starting Thursday night. But before we wrap up Week 9, we have to hand out the awards. MDS joins us with the awesome Pat Tillman jersey, Veterans Day, etc. And Pat Tillman, I saw he would have turned 45 the other day, which I already feel old. That makes me feel even older. So we welcome in MDS, the youngest of this trio. He starts us off with Offensive Player of the Year. Offensive player of the week is Cordero oh, year, Patterson. Week. Yeah, they know, the, they know, they know, they know who we mean. Go ahead. Who had the most <laughs> receiving yards of any player in the NFL this week, by the way, 126 in the Falcons win over the Saints. And, you know, Patterson is on his fifth NFL team. He's having his best season. He has already surpassed his career high in rushing yards. He's just 10 yards short of his career high in receiving yards. And we're obviously only eight games into the season, which is now less than halfway through the season. He's just done such a great job this year. And I loved what he said. He said, well, my mom worked three jobs when I was growing up. I can handle the three jobs of running back, wide receiver, and kickoff return. I'm going to go with a quarterback in Cleveland, MDS. And perhaps no one has been harder on Baker Mayfield than I have. Uh, But I thought he did a great job of handling the week very well, physically, mentally, everything else. We know that shoulders banged up. Odell Beckham's dad calls him out. It's a bad situation in Cleveland. I realize he got a lot of help from Nick Chubb. He got a lot of help from Denzel Ward. He got a lot of help from Miles Garrett. But he was the leader of that team, and he came out and performed very well, 14-21, 218 yards, two touchdowns. He had a perfect quarterback rating into the third quarter and ended up at 138.2. He had just, I thought, a a really outstanding game, especially based on all the distractions of the week, Mike. Yeah, I remember very vividly the line that you had early 2020 is the Browns were struggling. I think Baker Mayfield has more commercials than he has NFL victories, and that's when they – Maybe he heard you then. Maybe maybe you're the reason why he turned it around. Maybe you're the reason why he turned it around this week. Although I think getting rid of Odell Beckham Jr. had a lot to do with what we saw in Cleveland, or at least from Cleveland in Cincinnati. I'm going to go to Baltimore. Lamar Jackson, the double-triple, as MDS coined the phrase, the 12th time in Lamar Jackson's career. He has 100 or more rushing yards and 100 or more passing yards. He had 120 against the Vikings. And I like how... He stays calm, and he has that very deliberate demeanor now that they fall behind. The book on Lamar Jackson used to be he couldn't bring the Ravens back from behind, but they were down 14 points in the second half against the Vikings, and it was never an issue. It was never a problem, and the Ravens needed this one after losing 24-6 to the Chargers before their bye week at home. The last thing they needed was to sandwich the bye week with a loss at home to a Vikings team they they should have had an easier time with than they did. But credit to Lamar Jackson, great day statistically, and had that calm hand for the offense. And I just wish during his bye week, Lamar Jackson's agent, Lamar Jackson, would have gotten his contract done 
because he's got the rest of the season now where he's carrying this injury risk and he's playing that very physical style, and I just wish he would get his financial reward because he deserves it. All right, defensive player of the week time, MDS, who do you have? Well, Josh Allen of the Jaguars contributed to a miserable game for Josh Allen of the Bills. Josh Allen sacked Josh Allen. Josh Allen intercepted Josh Allen. Josh Allen recovered a Josh Allen fumble. The Jaguars defense has been really bad for most of this season, but we're talking about defensive player of the week. And for this week, I thought Josh Allen was outstanding for that Jaguars defense. I don't know that I'm persuaded that this Jaguars team has turned it around or that the franchise is heading in the right direction, but that defense certainly played its best game of the season on Sunday against the Bills. It was a great weekend for defensive players. T.J. Watt, J.C. Jackson, Xavier McKinney, Denzel Ward. They can't even make our list. I'm going with Jeffrey Simmons. I thought he was just dominant. He was more Aaron Donald than Aaron Donald in that game against the Rams. And and nobody except Mike Tirico gave uh, the, the Titans even a sliver of a chance to win that game. And they were so good on defense. Six tackles, three sacks, four quarterback hits, and three tackles for loss, Mike. For, for the Titans' defensive tackle. Just played really, really well, and I think he showed why they made him a first-round draft pick. And look, I, even though we probably should get some other teams involved here, I'm staying with the Titans. That's how dominant they were on yeah. Sunday night against the Rams. And we're at the point in the season where I think that maybe teams are cracking the code on what a team does offensively, and maybe the book is out now on the Rams offense with Matthew Stafford at quarterback. Kevin Byard had that six, that pick six. And I spoke to him after they beat the Colts the prior weekend. And just the, the passion he has, the energy he has. I think he's the heart and soul of that defense, even with Jeffrey Simmons playing as well. as he, Look at how he jumps that route. That's film study. That's coaching. That's, this is what they do in this spot. And he got there. And he makes that pick. He reads that play. And off he goes. And that was a big moment in the game. That was when... The snowball was careening downhill for the Rams, and, and they, were, they were never going to dig out of that hole. So good work by the Titans all around in winning a game that only Mike Tirico thought they were going to ultimately win. Rookie of the week time, MDS, who do you have? Eagles wide receiver Devontae Smith had, I think, his best game as a pro against the Chargers, catching five and six passes thrown to him for 116 yards and a touchdown. I think we've talked on this segment before about how Jamar Chase, the Bengals rookie receiver from LSU, has built-in chemistry with his college quarterback, Joe Burrow. And I see something similar with Devontae Smith and his Alabama teammate, Jalen Hurts. The chemistry between these two looks a lot better than you'd normally see from a second-year quarterback and a first-year receiver. And although Chase is the rookie of the year favorite, I think by the end of the year, we might start talking a little bit about Devontae Smith as a rookie of the year kid. MDS, the Broncos came into Arlington on Sunday, and I was at the game, and, and they made the Cowboys defense look like the Cowboys defense of last season, ran all over them. Javante Williams was a big reason for that. He had a career high, 111 yards, 17 carries. They had 190 yards rushing overall. Melvin Gordon had 80. Second-round choice showed that he needs to get the ball more, and I do wonder why the Broncos haven't given it to him more. But he deserves more carries after what he did. He was the first Broncos rookie with 100 yards since Phillip Lindsay had three such games in 2018. 
You know, I did uh, Justin Fields as my rookie of the week last week, and I got to do it again this week. Even though they lost again, Bears fans have reason to be excited. I can make the argument that Justin Fields is the best of the five rookie quarterbacks so far. We saw him throw it with depth and accuracy on Monday night. We saw him not get rattled when they fell behind both 14-0 and 20-6. Some of those balls, now that was a little bit underthrown, but still he hit a guy who was open and uh, the catch is made and off they go. He just, I, I, I was very impressed with his poise under fire in a spot like Pittsburgh in prime time. If I'm a Bears fan, I can deal with the losses because I expected them anyway this year. What has me excited is next year when Justin Fields is the guy wire to wire with all the first team reps in the offseason program, training camp, preseason, and ready to go week one, we may be on to something special here with Justin Fields. All right, next up, Coach of the Week, MDS, who do you have? Bill Belichick has been such a successful coach for so long now that we sometimes forget about him when we're talking about Coach of the Week or Coach of the Year, but he showed once again on Sunday what a good defensive game planner he is. The Panthers just had nothing for the Patriots' defense. Belichick definitely knows how to shut down Sam Darnold. And don't look now, but the Patriots have won four out of their last five. The only loss was in overtime against the Cowboys. This New England team is going to be a tough team to beat over the second half of the season. I had some questions coming into this season about Cliff Kingsbury, and I definitely thought he was on the hot seat. I don't think he's on the hot seat anymore, and he's my choice for Coach of the Week. No Kyler Murray, no DeAndre Hopkins, no A.J. Green. Of course, maybe that was a good thing because he didn't turn around for the one on the week before. But it was no problem for this Cardinals team. They got it done, Mike, with Colt McCoy. Came in with an 8-22 and record as a starter for the teams he was on. Five teams now he's been on, and he got it done. Cardinals got it done. Great game plan by Cliff Kingsbury. Yeah, I was one of the ones who thought he was on the hot seat and wasn't going to survive, so they have been incredible. And to win that game against a desperate 49ers team with Colt McCoy at quarterback, very impressive. I'm going back to Tennessee. You know, I thought about Kevin Stefanski because he weathered the storm very adeptly with OBJ, and they got a much-needed win. But what the Titans were able to do with the Rams, I think, was the most impressive outcome of the week. And, and I'm sorry, all apologies to Vic Fangio and the other coaches who found a way to get big victories. What Vrabel did in a big spot against the team that many thought was the best in the league without Derrick Henry to turn the page with no woe is me, no, oh, it's not our year after all, none of that down-in-the-mouth crap, next man up, the Belichick mindset, no excuses for injury. We expect to continue to play at a high level, regardless of who's able to play. That rubbed off on Vrabel, and he deserves the credit as one of the Coach of the Week winners here on PFTPM. All right, let's take a break. When we return, Tom Brady with some thoughts about the 17th game, the first year of that schedule. Does he like it? Does he not? You'll find out next. Steve Belichick, de facto defensive coordinator of the New England Patriots, was growing up as Bill Belichick's son in 1995 when he was coach of the Browns. And it was November 6th of 95 when the late Art Modell announced that the Browns were leaving for Baltimore. Our family wasn't well liked by the public. I learned not to trust the media. Just kidding. Yeah, sure. Sure. He trusts the media. Sure. Uh He's lived that his whole life as Bill Belichick's son. So, Shereen, 1995... 
And that was before my time in yeah. covering the NFL. I was uh, in a different life then. You were covering the NFL then. What, what stands out to you from that chaos in Cleveland when they made the announcement that after the 95 season they were going to head to Baltimore? Yeah, it was pretty incredible. The Buccaneers, who I was covering at the time, it was my second season, played in Cleveland in week two. And so, I, you know, being new to everything, I would go get there to early at a stadium and kind of walk around. And the first thing that hit me is, man, what a dump this place is. And it was. It was horrible. And, of course, Sam Weish, the most hated man in Cleveland, was going back to Cleveland. So there was the, kind of that storyline, too. But I was not surprised when it came out based on what their stadium looked like and, and everything else surrounding that team. But, you know, you hate to see the Browns leave Cleveland. I'm glad they came back as an expansion team in 1999. But to see Cleveland without a football team, I can't imagine Cleveland not having a football team, Mike. Despite all their woes, never been to a Super Bowl, as we well know. But Cleveland has to have an NFL team. That fan base is just too good. Well, and I'll tell you what my reaction was at the time. It was Conspiracy Mike with uh, the, the charts and the graphs <laughs> yeah. and the short sleeve shirts and the cigarettes because I was trying to figure out a way that the Vikings, who had ongoing yeah. stadium issues at the time, would move to Cleveland. That, that was, I saw the opportunity. Hey, the market's opened. And you know what? You, you hear all the time, the Vikings may move, the Vikings may move. Well, I'll move them to Cleveland, and uh, I'll move to Cleveland. It was only a couple hours away. So that, that, that was my first reaction. See you later, Browns. Let's try to get the Vikings down to Cleveland. Of course, that was back in 1995 when I still actually cared about the Vikings. Now I hate all teams equally, some more than others, <laughs> according to some. All right, uh, l- let's get to it. Bill Belichick's former quarterback, Tom Brady, who was in high school in 1995, is now still in the NFL all these years later, and this is the first season of 17 games. Although he decided not to comment on Aaron Rodgers on his latest edition of the Let's Go podcast, Tom Brady was asked, as the Buccaneers come out of the bye, his views on 17 games. Here's what he had to say. I think it's pointless. I, I thought it was a terrible decision, so I don't, I don't like the fact that we're playing a 17th game at all. I think 16 is plenty. And, um, you know, again, you're eight, you're, you're eight games into the year and you're not halfway through. So that's kind of a, a little frustrating aspect. So whatever, I mean, we'll play it. It's there. You know, a lot of guys probably miss games over the course of the season anyway. So they probably don't play all 16, most guys, but you know, if you're fortunate to be able to make it through a season, then, you know, you got to play the 17th game. Um, I think there's a lot of things that I would adjust to, you know, the off season, um, you know, the regular season schedule. A lot of people know my feelings on some of these topics. So I've been pretty vocal about uh, NFL issues over the last couple of years. And some of the, you know, things that are done that I don't necessarily think are in the best interest of the game. Tom Brady also went on to say, hey, the owners get what they want. They've got the bargaining power. They've got the leverage. They've got the will to impose on the players that which they want and he's right Shereen but it's not going to change we learned in 1987 strikes don't work work stoppages don't work because the players have finite years that they can play football they're not going to give up one of those years they're not going to collectively say we'll stand down for a year to get more now and to get more later for the people who come after us we want to play and a lot of them would play for free. A lot of them love the game. They don't want to give up a season. 
as part of some tug of war with billionaires they probably think they're going to lose anyway. So that's the problem. The owners are far more likely and far more willing to sacrifice a year of football than the players would be. And because of that, the owners use it against them. And the owners got to where they are because they know how to make shrewd and effective business decisions. And they use the leverage they have. And they, they, they will take full advantage of the weakness of the players because they want to play football and get paid to play football. They will take full advantage of every partnership they have to the best possible advantage of the league. And they wanted 17, they were getting 17. And when they want 18, you know what's going to happen, Shereen? They're going to get 18. They're going to get 18. Yeah. The owners don't care about the players, Mike. That That's the bottom line. This is a bottom business that they're looking at the bottom line going, how much money can we make? As you've pointed out multiple times, most owners are more concerned about that bottom line, about making money, than they are about winning. And the players, they're going to turn over, aside from Tom Brady, Four to five years, there's other players going in. So, you know, they're not going to be around. Owners are going to be around forever. So we don't care. Somebody will come in and play 17 games, 18 games, whatever we want, expanded playoffs, whatever they end up going to. But as long as fans keep consuming it, it's sort of like the Pro Bowl, right? Everybody's like, why didn't the Pro Bowl go away? Well, because people watch it. The ratings are great for the Pro Bowl. So people complain about it, but they keep watching. 17 games, 18 games, expanded playoffs, everybody's going to keep watching, so they're going to keep expanding this thing. Who knows how far out this goes? Right now we're talking about 17 games. Eventually, as you said, they're going to 18. There's no question about that. More inventory means more money because it's going to mean more gambling opportunities. They're going to try to get to 18, and I think at that point you will see expansion of the NFL to 34, maybe 36, maybe 38, maybe even as many as 40 teams because more games, more bets, more money. And if it shortens careers to play 18 games, the owners aren't going to care. As you said, there's an endless supply of new guys they can bring in. The the supply of potential pro football players far outweighs the demand at every position except quarterback. And there are more quarterbacks than there used to be, which will justify expansion. The owners are always going to be there, whether it's them, whether it's their kids or spouses or sisters or brothers or whoever in the family ends up getting the equity or they sell it to some other oligarch who's going to come in and take over, and that person's going to own it for 40 years. For the players, it's very transient and they don't have equity, and they get what they can while they can. That's why I always say to each individual player, get what you can while you can. When you have leverage, use it, because usually it's the owners who have the leverage, and they're going to see you come and go. And when they need you, that's when you take a stand and get what you can, because the moment they don't need you is the moment you are gone, and they move on to the next guy. And and, uh, that's just the way it is. And I don't think it's going to change. And Tom Brady may not like it, but it's not going to change. And maybe he'll still be here when 18 games are played, but it's coming. (laughs) I'd say 2030-ish by then, maybe earlier, it's going to happen. Let's take a break. We'll crack open the PFTPM mailbag when this Tuesday edition of the program continues right after this. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. 
So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. All right, limited mailbag because we talk too damn much. I blame Shireen. Uh, Dr. J144, do you think David Culley is a lock to return for year two in Houston? Well, you know, David Culley is a good friend of mine, but I wondered the other day, the dawned on me, did the Texans hire David Culley so they can fire him after one season and no one's going to care? This would have been a better team if Tyrod Taylor had stayed healthy. I think they would have beaten the Browns in week two, but they didn't. So I think it's a possibility he could be fired after this season, Mike. I don't think it's a lock to return because, frankly, if I lived in Houston, you couldn't give me tickets to one of those games. I wouldn't walk yep. across the street to watch the Texans play other than to maybe watch their opponent play. But if I was a Texans fan, I'd be completely disconnected right now, and that, that means that a change is necessary. All due respect to David Culley. Red Brood asks, if OBJ goes to the Saints, does that spell the end for Michael Thomas in New Orleans? What do you think, Shereen? It could, Mike. I could see Michael Thomas going somewhere else after this season. Well, I think it's, it's apples and oranges because you could have OBJ for the rest of the year and then bring Michael Thomas back next year in lieu of OBJ. I just think one and the other are separate. I also don't think Michael Thomas is going to be back either. We'll be back tomorrow. Unless we're not. We will be, I think. Have a great evening. (laughs) The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.